Okay. I recently uh, returned from a month in Burma, Myanmar, as it's called these days, which is a, a place where I've spent a lot of time over most of the last 20 years. Uh, not every winter, but many winters. Um, time there on retreat, time living as a bhikkhu, a Buddhist monk, uh, helping with a retreat for many years at a place called the Chazwa Monastery in Upper Burma in the Sagaing Hills, and also working with some small uh, aid projects, humanitarian aid projects, with some friends. And I have a, a lot of um, love for that country, for the people there. And I realize uh, that there's a lot of news that comes out of, of Burma these days at times. It's uh, disturbing and to me heartbreaking. And um, I, I want to acknowledge that. But I have a certain perspective that's based on my uh, history and time there, um, my love of that country and of those people. I spent part of the time on retreat in, in this area of the Sagaing Hills that I mentioned that's uh, in sort of upper middle Burma uh, on the Irrawaddy River near Mandalay, across the river, a little bit downstream from Mandalay. And it's, uh, in some ways, for me, Burma is kind of a heart center of Buddhism, one, one, of, one of them. And the Sagaing Hills within that country are kind of a heart center for uh, practice and study, uh, and that has been that way for a long, long time, many, many centuries. The Chazwa Monastery that I mentioned, where I've spent a lot of time uh, since, well, most of 20 years, uh, has been there, there's been something there, a practice center, a monastery, for over a thousand years. And it's not one of the oldest places and in the hills. And they're they're dotted with uh, pagodas and temples and nunneries and monasteries and um, there's just been this continuous uh, field of practice and uh, study and you can really feel it's it's very palpable to me at least that um, the energy of that that's accumulated over a long period of time and and the Chazwa monastery where I wound up doing my retreat I wasn't planning to go there but it worked out for me too. And that's filled for me with memories of a very beloved teacher of mine, Sayada Ulakana. Uh, when I go there, his, his being, his energy, his um, kindness and care, his generosity um, fill my, my heart and my mind. Uh, I may tell other stories about him I was thinking today, noticing, you know, when I stop talking right now, it's really quiet here, isn't it? Very quiet, very peaceful, the setting here at Spirit Rock. It's pretty amazing, really. And the Chazwa Monastery, where I did my retreat, is, uh, it's, on the, uh, it's on the edge of a village. And when I, I began my treat, I, my retreat this time, I think it was, I think it was Christmas Eve actually, when I when I started, and um, was a Thursday as I recall, and 
and it was the beginning of of kind of a non-stop four-day party in the village. And um, they have a a different style <laughs> there than we do uh, when they're celebrating and doing things. And, and there's a, a culture of sharing. Um, and one of the ways that's done is by using lots of uh, very poor quality but high-volume loudspeakers to um, to share things <laughs> with everyone. <laughs> and so there was a lot of music and what sounded to me like a kind of a play or puppet shows going on. I don't know, you know, it was all in my head. Something was happening. But it, it went kind of nonstop for four days with some little breaks, you know, maybe between three and four in the morning or something. It would, it would quiet down a bit. But it was quite, um, quite different than here. And, and they, they put, even Dharma talks are put on loudspeakers and those are kind of woven into everything, you know. And, and so there would be these, what I recognize because of my long time there, these Dharma talks would come. And they like, they like the echo effect. Um, <laughs> for some reason that's very appealing to the Burmese um, temperament to have a, a nice wah, 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 wah echo. Hello, 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 hello. hello. Good evening. You know, if I had it here, it would be that kind of thing. But it's broadcast out. I, I, I pictured doing it here at Spirit Rock, actually, and, and sending it out over Woodacre with this, this echo effect and, and wondering how that might go over. I'm not sure how, it would, how well it would go over, but, but in, in Burma, that would be done. You know, you'd, the more people who hear it, the, the more merit and, and the better. That's how these things are held. And during the days, there would sometimes be breaks, but the party was going on. But also at Chaswa, it's a teaching monastery, and there are a lot of novices, uh, young, young uh, uh, monks, or kids who will become monks. So they're living, they look like little monklets, and they're, they're novices, and they're in robes, and, and, um, and they're studying. And the way they study and learn there is to repeat um, the texts and the suttas and the different things over and over till they get them memorized. And, um, and they seem to have the idea that the louder it is done out loud and the louder you do it, the better. Um, and so, so that was going on all day, <laughs> uh, most days, or at intervals, many hours a day. And I was so happy. And I don't remember any uh, real negative mind states coming in relation to all of that, which was kind of surprising in a way. But it points to, you know, we have such great conditions here and they are wonderful, but, but you know, the, the, the external conditions are not, not all there is to um, a time of retreat. You know, a lot of what we, um, it just points to something very important, that the conditions, the external conditions are not um, always so important as we sometimes uh, uh, feel that they are. I was staying in a small um, meditation hut uh, in the above the main monastery compound, where there are a bunch of uh, little, uh, like little cabins, little huts scattered through the hills above there. These are kind of steep hills that rise up out of the river valley, and and there are great views out over the the valley and then the beautiful Irrawaddy River, which is quite large, looking towards the, the rising sun and the, the high Shan Plateau in the distance there. 
And um, in the early mornings, after often there's a breakfast meal uh, just at, at the first sign of dawn, so before sunrise. And, and before and after that, uh, people sweep. The whole monastery often gets swept in different ways. And so I, I joined that uh, rhythm, and I would do some period of sweeping my yogi job that I assigned myself was sweeping around my hut and, and then different uh, parts of the pathways there. And many mornings I would climb up uh, to the highest point of, of Chaswa Monastery, the compound, to uh, a beautiful pagoda that uh, was built up there some years ago. And, and I would sweep around the, the, the pagoda and sometimes I would light a candle in front of one of the... the uh, Buddha Rupa's there, and then I would sweep the stairs that uh, that led down from it. Not every day, but often I made that part of my morning to uh, climb and get the sense of space and the view and uh, spend some time cleaning that. And, and many days, this is the first time I had noticed this, many days I would be up there sweeping and I would pause to look and and there were these flocks of huge cranes that were flying over, groups of 10 and 15 and, and more, very huge ones, the kinds of cranes that if they were standing here, standing around, they're, they're nearly as tall as one of us and with great wingspans. And they would come just floating over the hills and head out over the valley, and I'd watch them as they disappeared into the distance. And there was some... It was so kind of the sense of upliftment that came in that beautiful vision of the, the cranes flying over and and a sense of somehow it captured this quality of kind of spiritual longing and also uh, the promise of, of spiritual understanding that somehow seemed to be carried across uh, and out into the world on the wings of these beautiful birds, these cranes that flew over. It really lift me out of myself and out of, out of, um, sort of sometimes mundane kinds of concerns and worries that might be in my mind at those, at times, and and it would lift me out of that to see this beautiful sight of the cranes just as sun was rising, over the Irrawaddy River Valley. We often tend to live our lives much of the time in the world of um, the appearances, the surface appearances of things, and the in the world of concepts and ideas that we have. And sometimes this tendency is so woven into uh, the way we approach our lives, view our lives, so woven into the fabric of our perception in a way that that we we don't notice it. It's taken for granted that that this view that we have on is the whole picture, is is the the fullness of the truth of reality in some way, and and this tendency often has a limiting effect on it. It limits our ideas of what is possible. It can limit what we feel that we're capable of. And the power and beauty of a time on retreat and of the meditative experience. One aspect of its power and beauty, I feel, is that it has the potential, the real possibility, 
of of um, taking us out of this realm of concept and the surface appearances of things to drop us to a more direct, non-conceptual kind of uh, relationship to life. A very simple but very direct connection to our experience to life as it's unfolding in each moment. And it's really um, beneath, you could say, our ideas and concepts about the world, about the nature of reality, about ourselves. And opening to life in this way can be extremely healing and transforming for us. And one reason is that it gives us the possibility to see through these self-limiting ideas that we often are not aware that they even exist because they're so woven into the way we see things and woven into our perception. We don't even see how they're operating. But through meditation, we can start to uncover and uh, let go of some of this limit, self-limiting way of seeing. Because we tend to solidify ourselves and the world through our ideas about it, our beliefs, what we hold to be true and real, what we've been taught is true and real. And it, it has an, the effect of making our lives uh, at times quite narrow and limited and constrained. But meditation has the possibility to open us to a reality that's, um, that's beyond this limitation and our often unseen ideas about the nature of things, about the nature of reality, about what we're capable of, what's possible for us. And this opening in this way can have profound consequences in our lives, can really uh, impact our understanding and the way we live. The beloved teacher Kalu Rinpoche put this understanding uh, very simply and beautifully in this very famous quotation. He once said, We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. When you understand this, you see that you are nothing, and being nothing, you are everything. That is all. Now this, this statement of being nothing, you see that you are nothing, that he's speaking of in this, in this quotation, it's not pointing to some kind of annihilation or non-existence or disintegration. It's pointing to the letting go of what we might call a, a false or wrong view. Wrong views, misguided, misunderstanded ways of seeing things that bind us to this limited and limiting perspective. There's a very real way in which what we're doing in our meditation practice on retreat, when we come here for the month like this or two months, what we're really doing is we're observing nature. Our practice is the practice of observing nature, observing the nature of things, becoming very intimate with the nature of things. The nature of things below surface appearances and concepts. And 
We observe nature internally in this body, this mind, this heart, each of us. And we observe it externally in the world around us. But in either case, it's the observation of nature that's happening there. And, and being here at Spirit Rock really supports this. It's such a beautiful place. And we're surrounded by such uh, beauty in the world here. I think so often, and maybe this is a, a, a somehow a, a, a consequence of the kind of life we, we tend to live these days, modern life, we, we can feel quite numb and, and disconnected from the world and from other beings and, and from ourselves. And um, often the sense of, of a disconnection is an aspect of what brings us to practice to a retreat like this that opens us to uh, seeking some kind of um, greater understanding, leads us to what we might call a spiritual search, spiritual life. And we tend to speak about nature and the environment as, as something somewhere out there, separate, apart from us, other than us. And this, this tendency, this attitude, which, which we, we don't see, it's so... Um, part of how we look at things. It leads to so many kinds of problems in the world, in our lives. But actually, it's not true. Nature isn't out there. We talk about going out into nature. I'll spend time in nature. So it's out there somewhere, and we can go into it sometimes. But this mind and body are nature. They're an aspect of the environment, of the landscape. We come out of that. We're born out of that. We're supported by it, live sustained by it, and we will all inevitably return to it. And I think some part of us really knows this in a very deep way. These are some words from uh, D.H. Lawrence. I am part of the sun as my eye is part of me. That I am part of the earth, my feet know perfectly, and my blood is part of the sea. There is not any part of me that is alone and absolute, except perhaps my mind. And we shall find that the mind has no existence by itself. It is only the glitter of the sun on the surfaces of the water. Someone, I think this may be a quotation from uh, the great Thai forest master Ajahn Buddhadasa, or maybe it's a, a paraphrase. I don't know where I got this quotation. Maybe I made it up, but I don't think so. But anyway, someone once said, what we are doing with this practice is giving back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. And this is a quotation that's been in my mind since I heard it quite some time ago. And I think there's something quite profound and uh, very true in, in this simple statement. What we're doing with this practice is we're offering back, giving back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. I mean, in a very direct way, that's what we're doing. That's this process, that's this practice, is offering this back, giving this back. Everything that we experience 
in this mind, in this body, the totality of what we experience in our lives, in the world around us, it's the unfolding of natural processes. That's what that is. And as we begin to really connect with, to see, to understand this, there's a natural process where we start to let go of ownership of any of it. And this results in a great relaxation. It's as though we put down a weight or burden that we didn't realize we were carrying. And this leads us to this opening in, into the fullness of what Kalu Rinpoche was pointing to in terms of this being nothing. That's a very full quality, this being nothing. Being nothing, we realize we are everything. That is all. You know, we have these incredible minds and, and these sensitive bodies. Aren't they sensitive? We're just walking sensitivities are impacted constantly through the sense doors and connect us to life and and we uh, apprehend reality nature through this sensitivity of mind and body and the mind has this nature to know that's what it does that's mind is this knowing faculty mind just does this i mean that's actually incredible we take it for granted because we're so used to it just happening. I mean, take a moment right now and just notice the quality of the aware mind. Feel that. It's an amazing thing. This mind that knows things. And this ability that we have with mindfulness, with mindful awareness, to show up for the moment, to know, experience, and to really have this, uh, as Sally was saying, this, this kind of self-reflective quality there where we know that we're aware. This makes everything possible. This is a complete game changer for us. And it's so simple right now. It's here right now. But it, it makes all things possible for us. With this quality, everything and anything is possible. Without it, we're just living out our conditioning. This is not a small thing. From the uh, perspective of meditation, all that we can know, the totality of our experience, all of that there's a certain way that it's all equal. All experiences are equal in terms of, uh, in the medit- terms of the meditative practice and the meditative process. And this is very important understanding for us. Anything that arises in the flow of our experience in our lives, in what we can know and notice in any moment, anything and everything falls within the scope of our practice. There's nothing that arises that falls outside of the practice. I hope, I hope you're hearing this. Because one of the hardest things for us to learn in meditation is that our practice is not about having certain kinds of experiences. 
It's not about having good feelings or attaining special kinds of states, beautiful, blissful states. And, and we do sometimes have beautiful, powerful, opening experiences. It's not to say that this does not happen. It does. And this can bring energy and interest and inspiration, bolster our faith. We feel like something's happening. Practice is working. But as inspiring as any experience might be in the moment, we need to keep in mind that ultimately this path is about freedom in the moment, regardless of what's happening. And this actually is very empowering reflection, I think, because it leads us um, to, it's important and powerful, because, and it leads us to the very heart of what the Buddha taught and to the possibility that we might find a kind of true happiness or a lasting happiness, freedom, peace, the deepest kind of happiness. You know, most of us who would choose to spend time a month or two months on a retreat like this, you know, it's not that many people in the world who would choose to do it. And, and I think most of us could say, would say, if asked, that we're motivated at least in part or in some way by a search for happiness or ease or peace, contentment. You might use lots of different words to express this. Longing for meaning, a deeper connection to life and some kind of understanding that brings ease to the mind and heart, non-struggle, non-resistance. All these ways we might express this movement of heart, of mind. You know, this is a universal wish that I think really all beings share, this uh, wish to be at ease, to be deeply happy. And this is normal and beautiful, inherently lovable to want this. And I think it's good to remind ourselves that so much of the stuff that we, our minds and hearts seem to get up to, that seem to be messing us up, that it's born of this movement. It's an attempt to find happiness, ease, peace. Just sometimes it's, it's, on, it's on a track that isn't actually going in that direction, but it's born of this. And so if we're looking for happiness, for deep, lasting, true happiness, we have to look in the right place because if we're not looking in the right place in the right way, we're not likely to find it. We're not going to find what we're looking for. And this goes to the heart of of. Maybe you could say the, the human condition or the, our predicament. And I think in a way, pretty much anything and everything that we, any one of us up here, might offer in one of these talks is um, an exploration of, of the question, where do we look for true, real happiness? Where can we uh, look for that? How can we find that? And in order to begin to explore that question, we have to uh, look at what we mean by happiness. Because there's often a lot of confusion, I think, um, some very deep conditioning in, in our lives that confuses uh, this question for us. So I'll address one aspect of that. I'll look at that question uh, in one way this evening. We draw the meditation instructions that we offer uh, in great part from one teaching that the uh, Buddha offered 
that's one of the most um, beloved uh, of the suttas, the discourses in the whole uh, huge Pali canon. That's the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on the establishments or foundations of mindfulness. And it's a very uh, detailed set of very um, clear meditation instructions, right? the single clearest set of instructions in the whole of the Pali canon. And in one in 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 this in the in what's called the second foundation or second establishment of mindfulness, the Buddha uh, in, instructs us uh, to bring attention to what he called uh, in Pali Vedana, which is feeling tone. It's this quality of uh, either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant. Uh, shorthand we say neutral, but it wasn't expressed that way. It was neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And it's said that there is this feeling tone that arises in our experience with any contact at any sense door. Sometimes it's quite subtle, we don't notice, and sometimes it's very obvious. Something uh, very, um, some, some say some food that we really like, really enjoy, and the pleasant feeling is very clear there, or uh, a painful sensation in the body and the, the unpleasant feeling tone can be quite obvious some of the time. Some of the time it's very subtle and the whole realm of uh, what we might, what we, I'll say, call neutral for uh, uh, keep it shorthand, mostly we don't notice that feeling tone at all. That tends to uh, go unnoticed. We tend to assume that these qualities are are kind of um, integral to experience. We we tend to put them into the the experience, into that sense contact. We 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 say they're there, <laughs> an unpleasant or pleasant experience. Uh, but it's a it's a quality that arises in the mind, in relationship or out born of that contact. We don't tend to see that. We tend to to put it. Uh, in there, but it's not a fixed thing, and you know there's obvious examples of of how this might be, or you know we're not all the same. I I happen to really like raisins, and for me, oatmeal without raisins is a is a tragic thing that should not be endured. But I, one of my colleagues who sits to my left up here on the platform, <laughs> finds anything to do with raisins to be a, an awful experience that he will avoid if at all possible. Raisins are bad and wrong. <laughs> and, um, and so I find a raisins, the consuming of them, to be a pleasant thing. But the person I'm referring to does not. <laughs> a raisin is an unpleasant experience to have to eat one of those. Or, or perhaps we really love chocolate brownies. You know, and we... And they put them out at lunch, and, and we have a brownie, and there's lots of them, and we, we have a second brownie. And, and it's so pleasant. But then, by the time we've gotten to our tenth brownie, we don't want to ever see a brownie again. Keep them away, you know. And, and the poor brownies are innocent here, <laughs> you know. So that, that's not a fixed thing in terms of how we, uh, this, this experience of this feeling tone of pleasant and unpleasant and see it in these kind of simple, silly examples. 
But part of the reason that the Buddha wanted us to pay very careful attention here is because this feeling tone, there's an accompanying um, deeply conditioned response to these, to this feeling, to the pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. Pleasant feelings tend to condition movement towards a grasping, a clinging, a wanting desire. Movement towards unpleasant tends to condition a wanting to get away from, a movement away, or a resistance of pushing away. And neutral, or neither pleasant nor unpleasant, tends to condition not knowing a kind of a more deluded state where we're just not seeing, we don't see it. It tends to condition uh, this not seeing, these kind of uh, root um, sources of, of uh, trouble for us, of, of greed, hatred, and delusion, you could see, you could say, you could see it in that way. They tend to condition those responses. This isn't to say, to be careful, there's nothing wrong with having pleasant experience. Pleasant experiences are great. And given how difficult our lives can be, at times it's good to have them. And wanting to avoid unpleasant experience, unpleasant feeling is natural and normal. There's nothing weird about that. No one really uh, wants to, f- to feel pain, to feel painful sensations. At the same time, unpleasant sensations are part of bodily life. They're going to come. We can't avoid them altogether. So, so pleasant and unpleasant are not, not the problem here. But what happens so often is that our one strategy we have for finding happiness, it, it becomes this attempt to string together as many pleasant feelings as possible in a row and at the same time to try to avoid having any unpleasant ones at all or at least to space out so we don't have to feel them. And we can't pull it off. And it's interesting sometimes to look at how we move through the world in this push-pull, pull towards the pleasant, away from the unpleasant. We can see it operating often in our lives and you know, it can become so extreme for some of us at times in the range of addictive kinds of behaviors that, uh, you know, can rule our lives. This craving f- either for the pleasant or craving to not feel what's unpleasant. And some of us have had um, profound experiences with this in our lives. And then on retreat, how often if we're reporting on or thinking to ourselves or describing a good sitting, look and see how often does that, is the criteria for that a higher percentage of times when there's a pleasant feeling tone <laughs> happening and a bad sitting when, that's, when it's unpleasant feeling tone. Check it out and see if that's happening, if that's a way that... Um, that tends to be described in your mind and heart. And the problem isn't having pleasant or unpleasant experiences. Those are going to come. That's part of life. That's not the problem. But to have our search for happiness be this, this endless attempt to have pleasant experiences, to avoid unpleasant ones, it's, it just sets us up for an exhausting life that's ultimately doomed to frustration and failure because we can't pull it off. We can't make it be that way. 
You know, but we don't want to see it. It seems like this is bad news. There's a mistake here when we, we start to, to see this because we're, we're holding out some hope that we're going to be able to get it so that it's always the way we want it. And, and there's a lot of um, input out there that, that seems to be convincing us that this is possible, you know. And you look at all the commercials and the people are, they're so good looking and they're so happy. And if we had our act together, we would be happy and we'd probably also be just that good looking too. And it, it's as though, and then we, that carries over into how we approach our practice at times. And, and we, we have this idea that, that the goal of, of uh, our practice is to reach some kind of steady state where it's, it's pleasant pretty much all the time. And, and our idea of the Buddha's enlightenment is that he's gotten it to where it's just always really groovy and how, how we want it to be. But we can't, pull this off. And it's not that we don't try to live as well as we can. That's not the point here. But we're going to get that range of pleasant and unpleasant. That's, that's the deal. If we take birth in this realm, in this body, in a mind like this. So then what do we do? What's a reliable strategy? How do we, how do we work with this? Where do we look for real happiness? You know, if we can't get it to only be how we want it. This is a this is a big problemo here. This is a dilemma for us. So if we want to get to the root of this problem, we have to um, we have to really explore it and we have to connect to and open to the, the depth uh, and the breadth of the this kind of insecurity that underlies this predicament. And through his exploration of, of this very question and his, um, his attempt to understand what we might call the sort of fundamental existential questions of life, of birth and, and aging and sickness and death, and, and what does it mean if that's the trajectory? <laughs> you know, if you take birth, that's where you're heading. <laughs> you're heading with all of that. How do you make sense of that? And in, in exploring this, investigating this, the Buddha came to a couple of very um, key understandings that really address the heart of, of uh, this heart of the matter and go to the very uh, heart of, of what he uh, understood and, and taught. So the first of these is a, is a really uh, deep understanding and uh, relationship to what is called dukkha, Pali word dukkha, often translated as, as suffering, but I think words like unreliability or unsatisfactoriness are better translations. And this is the first noble truth, the truth, noble truth of, of dukkha, the understanding. This is to be understood. And we can understand this on a couple of levels. The very kind of elemental or, or basic or, or obvious way that we can see this is in terms of of pain and painful, unpleasant feelings in the body and mind and uh, that are associated with bodily life and the process of birth and aging and sickness, the process of dying and difficult, painful situations that come at times in our lives. This is dukkha. But there's also a more subtle understanding of dukkha that has to do with, with this quality of unreliability or insecurity that's born of... Um, born of constant change and it's an intrinsic part of all 
conditioned life, conditioned existence. It doesn't matter if it's pleasant or unpleasant. And dukkha on this level is points to this kind of inner anxiety that is produced by constant change. You know, pleasant experiences don't last. Things change. Everything is constantly in the state of flux, and for the most part, it's, it's out of our direct control, largely at least out of our direct control. We can't determine to have it be the way we want it to be, only one way. So this leads to the second understanding I want to touch on tonight. What the Buddha discovered was that struggle and suffering in our lives in relation to this uh, unreliable, ultimately unsatisfactory nature of things, born of change, struggle and suffering in relation to that, it's not so much because of the conditions that we find in our lives, the circumstances, but it's born of how we relate to that unreliability, that changing nature. And of course, there's very real, very deep suffering that happens for many beings. It's not to deny the truth of that. But so much of our struggle and suffering comes from resistance, denial, our attempts to control and manipulate life, try to get it to only be a certain way, failing at that, trying to hold on to certain kinds of experiences when their very nature is to change and pass away, just the nature of things. And this this seems obvious. This isn't some special kind of understanding. When we speak of this, it's obvious to us. But it also runs very counter to uh, a deeply habituated way of seeing things because we're very conditioned to look outside ourselves for both the source of our struggles and suffering and the, and the uh, solution to that. We don't tend to look inside. We, look, we tend to put it out. It's, it's a problem out there. Something I should be able to, to change and fix if I have my act together. And so in, in exploring this and in coming to these understandings, the Buddha saw that in, in a way we have a very deep misunderstanding about where to look for happiness, about what might actually bring a real lasting happiness. But he saw also that we can undo this misunderstanding because the key to happiness, to freedom, is within our own mind and heart. We can learn a different way to meet the conditions of our life. We can find freedom, ease, peace, and happiness right within the changing conditions that we encounter. The Buddha made a very famous statement once. He said, now and before I teach one thing only, suffering and the end of suffering. And this really... In some ways, it's kind of a radical statement. Teach suffering in the end of it. And the key understanding here is that if we want to realize the end of suffering, we have to understand the cause of suffering. And this is a, a reliable strategy, a way to actually uh, 
undertake the, the journey to a kind of real or abiding, lasting kind of happiness. We realize the end of suffering by abandoning its cause, by letting go of that. And so if we understand that uh, suffering, struggle, stress in our lives results from how we relate to life, to experience, it can lead us to shift how we relate to things and shift from seeing our experience instead of good and bad and right and wrong and what we want and don't want and what we like and don't like, which is the way we look at things so much of the time. It shifts us from looking at it that way to seeing it more simply just in terms of of suffering and non-suffering and what leads in one direction and what leads in the other. And this... This opens the door to the practice, this way of seeing and this understanding. This is where we start. This is where the Buddha started. Because until we open to this understanding and start to see in this way, we'll always be turning towards that which is not a reliable source of happiness. We'll be looking for a way out, turning to that which is incapable of ever providing us a source of lasting happiness, uh, asking it to do so. It can't do it. So opening to this understanding of dukkha, this unreliability, this um, uncertainty, this unsatisfactoriness, leads us to, to start looking for something that might be reliable, might lead us to real happiness. We can start looking in the right place. And so in meditation, we combine this quality of present moment awareness, this possibility of mindful awareness that is, is possible in any moment. And we bring qualities of interest, of kindness and acceptance. And and we come back over and over, and through this process, we start to cultivate a certain uh, kind of stability and balance in the mind and heart. And there's a natural kind of wise discernment that begins to arise, and we start to see very directly, almost in a very wordless way, start to be able to see what leads to happiness, freedom, what's skillful and useful, and what isn't. We see this in our lives, we see it in the world, and and relating in this way and seeing in this way, we're able to make uh, wise choices about what kinds of energies to follow, what we should cultivate, what we should abandon. Now this process is, um, it involves some real shifts in how we see things in our perspective. goes against some very deep conditioning. And it's not going to happen overnight. It takes a lot of patience and perseverance and, and maybe we could say kindness above all. Because the exploration that we undertake in, in uh, coming to an understanding of all of this, it demands that we meet our minds and, and bodies and, and hearts, you could say, very directly and in a very uh, really radically intimate way. And this isn't always easy to do. And many of us, maybe most of us, have spent a lot of our lives trying to avoid doing this. And sometimes it feels like 
maybe the hardest thing we could ask ourselves to do in any one moment that can feel that way. And so the more kindness and care that we can bring to this process, the better off we're going to be. If we can bring this quality of actually befriending this mind and heart, befriending this body, because we often create a situation where we're not doing that. We relate to the mind, especially in an adversarial way, as though it's, it's uh, an enemy to be struggled with and subdued or a problem to be fixed. How often do we see our own mind and heart as a problem we have to fix? But what our practice requires above all is the intention to understand rather than to judge. We need acceptance rather than blame. And we need kindness. And these are the words of the Buddha from one teaching. He said, therefore, you should train yourselves thus. We will develop and cultivate the liberation of mind by loving kindness. Make it our vehicle. Make it our basis. Stabilize it, steady it, and consolidate it. Exercise ourselves in it and fully perfect it. Thus should you tra- train yourselves. I love this. And one image that I draw from this quotation uh, we'll make it our vehicle. Let's make loving kindness, friendliness, this quality of care. Let's make this our vehicle. Let's, let's have our awareness ride on this vehicle. Let it carry the awareness. I picture the mindfulness riding on the vehicle of uh, friendliness, care, kindness. And I think there's a simple way we can start to uh, touch into this. This uh, having metta, friendliness, be our vehicle. We can touch into it by uh, turning to and nurturing our willingness to meet each moment, to meet our lives fully, just as they are in any given moment, to take care of our life by actually showing up for it and by not abandoning ourselves when it's difficult. These two ways. And as we as we really start to explore and uh, deepen into our understanding of um, what it is to be human and the deepest truths of that, this understanding of change and the uncontrollable, unreliable nature of uh, what we could call the conditioned realm, the conditioned existence, as we start to really explore this very directly in our practice, then this quality of care, of kindness, this becomes a natural response. It, this starts to arise just naturally in our mind and heart. As, as mindfulness opens us more and more deeply to the truths, deepest truths of life, and we start to uh, understand and abandon some of the conditioning and habitual patterns that have operated in our lives and led to stress and struggle for us, as that starts to let go, we find that this quality of kindness, care, compassion, that's what remains, that's what's there. That becomes the natural movement of the heart, of the mind, in response to life. 
And so in a really essential way, I feel that the practice of freedom is the practice of love. And the practice of love is the practice of freedom. And so we can make metta our vehicle. Let our awareness ride on this, ride on the vehicle of care and kindness. So I'll end this evening with uh, a few words from uh, Jalaladin Rumi, famous Persian poet. Every object and being in the universe is a jar overflowing with wisdom and beauty, a drop of the tigress that cannot be contained by any skin. Every jarful spills and makes the earth more shining as though covered in satin. Make peace with the universe. Take joy in it. It will turn to gold. Resurrection will be now. Every moment, a new beauty. So we'll continue to sit quietly for just a moment. Let the words drift away. Thank you for your kind attention. And we have uh, some time now for walking. And then at 9 p.m. we'll have uh, the last sitting with. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.